Hello, friends, and welcome back to the second of a two-part series live from ASCO, made possible by our friends at GSK. ASCO stands for the American Society of Clinical Oncology, and their eponymous meeting, which happens every June in Chicago with like 40 billion people from the cancer world talking about all the latest and greatest stuff going on. It's not every day, and this could be the first show that I've interviewed somebody with myelofibrosis, a chronic cancer of the bone marrow. The bone marrow. So I sat down with a certified health educator named Julia, who after a storied career in that discipline, found herself in the patient's chair instead. So she shared her both sides of the coin perspective on what it's like to be a... (laughs) an educator, and then a patient, and then the importance, the absolute utter importance of self-advocacy as a person living with cancer. We talk about barriers to treatment all the time on this show, and that means different things to different people. It's worth your while to stick around. It's a great conversation. Enjoy the show. Julia. Hi. Hi. How you doing? I'm pretty good. For the listeners, we're meeting for the first time. It's like a speed date, first date interview. But I read up about you. I hope you read up about me. I'm really crazy and weird. But this is how I talk. And you're also from New York-ish, so you can probably respond pretty quickly, too. I'm good with crazy and weird. Well, Brooklyn, right? We just bonded over Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Yeah. So you grew up there? I did. Whereabouts? Uh, Brownsville originally. And I went to high school out in Coney Island. Where I live. Yeah. My current stomping grounds. Yeah. It was a pleasure to meet you. So let's let's roll back the clock. All right. You're growing up in Brooklyn. You have your whole life ahead of you. You're living your life, living the dream, hopefully living the dream. What was happening, I'll say, yeah, I don't know, a year before healthcare landed on you? I was leading a crazy busy life in my early 40s. I had met my second husband at the time and I was dating. I We were blending a family of five kids, two dogs, and a nanny. I was <laughs> Good wor- luck with that. <laughs> yeah. I was working full-time in healthcare communications, actually, and traveling, and, yeah, just managing a you know, pretty intense life. What was your role, your career? What were you doing? I am a certified health education specialist, and I've been working in healthcare for years and years and years. I started out as a hospital administrator. As a matter of fact, we talked about I worked at Sloan Kettering Cancer Center many years ago but transitioned into developing health education materials. I think my experience in healthcare helped me recognize that once I had a rare cancer in particular, you know, I needed to take control of my experience. So what, what led up to this? Did, like, did your head fall off one day? No, it was um, an annual physical exam, I think, like a lot of other people with myeloproliferative neoplasms. Wait, wait, wait. Syllable blah, alert. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. Syllable alert. Yeah. <laughs> Say that again slowly. The alphabet soup of cancer, a myeloproliferative neoplasm, otherwise known as an MPN. Okay. Uh, so I was diagnosed with one initially. I've experienced all three at this point, but I went to have a physical, you know, annual physical, had a complete blood count as part of 
that experience. And it was, I don't know, maybe a week later that I got a voicemail in the old days of voicemail and landlines. I had a voicemail message left for me that said, um, you had an abnormal result. You need to get to a hematologist right away. All right. My response to that needs a pause because I had a very similar experience when they told me I was sick. So I went to the radiologist with my mom in 1995 in December and got the scans, went to the diner for lunch, went back to the house, and the answering machine was blinking. Mm. Hit the button. Boop. Hello, Matthew. (laughs) You have something wrong in your brain. Please come back. Right. Same story. Oh, my God. Yeah. Thank you for leaving that on my voicemail. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. should have kept the cassette yeah. tape. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so for the cheap seats in the back, what is this massively syllabic disease? It is a bone marrow disorder. It's a type of chronic cancer that causes changes to different blood cells, red, red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets. I had the first disease called essential, more, more multisyllables coming, essential thrombocythemia which essentially was an elevated platelet count. Uh, I just like cross-eyed. You know, Say this slower again. Essential thrombocythemia. Okay. Uh, otherwise known as ET. All right, so you do have acronyms. Uh, acronyms make acronyms. this a lot easier. Yeah. And these diseases cause uh, dysfunctional blood cells, cause, can ultimately cause scarring in the bone marrow, and uh, can put you at risk for both blood clots and bleeding episodes. So do you blame Jersey City for this? I'm, I guess, a weird person in that I I didn't blame anyone. I don't think I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why this happened to me. I spent more time like, really? Um, (laughs) Because I was an active, pretty good eater. I was one of those folks that like never took a sick day. So, you know, to be like 44, I think it was at the time, and to be told that I had this illness that then morphed into what I have today, which is a more serious progression called myelofibrosis otherwise known as, you'll love this, MF. Um, I think that's appropriate. (laughs) It is. And um, that really um, kind of revved up the experience because now I knew I had a much more serious illness. All right, so let's dig into what you said before, which Mm -hmm. is that your career kind of prepared you a little bit for all of this. In in what fashion? Um, One, as soon as I knew that my ET had progressed to myelofibrosis or MF, at the time, I was seeing a community oncologist, and I knew, lovely man, but I knew he was seeing all manner of cancers and that he had probably no actual in, you know, in-person experience with an MPN and certainly not myelofibrosis. So from my experience, I knew that I had to go find a hematologist oncologist who specialized, who had deep expertise, experience with a population of patients. So that was one of the, the ways, I think, as a, as a health educator, I understood how to go find that expert. Right. So you had your own unfair advantage, which is you being you. Most people don't have that, right? And I think over the years, and also in my personality and my experience in healthcare, helping other people um, and at Sloan Kettering get, have a better experience, get access to care, that I understood that I needed to now like rev up and get ready to kind of manage my experience. Right. So my symptoms started in college in the summer of 95. I, I was a pianist and I lost the ability to play with my left hand only. And I think the therapy back then was get over it, walk it off. We've come really far since then. Absolutely. And the idea of empathy in medicine is kind of a mixed bag because do you want your doctor to be a mechanic or do you want them to be like a surgeon or do you want them to be like an empath? What was your experience 
getting that level of individual care. That's really interesting because in MPNs, how you feel, uh, the kinds of symptoms you experience are essential to both be aware of and to share with your physician. Because if you read about an MPN, they say that all of these diseases are heterogeneous. So every person experiences myelofibrosis, for example, differently. It doesn't have like a, a specific path. I am a fortunate person in that mine has not progressed, although I've had lots of ups and downs and been living with it. And I think, uh, uh, now I forget your question. <laughs> so I've reached that point now where I forget what I'm saying all the time. And I kind of can't use cancer as an excuse anymore because it was 30 years ago. But you're forgiven. All is fair. This is the true life. This is what you're going through. So you mentioned that this is something you're living with, words that didn't exist 30 years ago. Everyone just kind of died of everything. What does it mean to live with it? It means learning how to live with it. And it means waiting for, figuring out how to wait for or deal with the fact that a shoe may drop. So having a chronic disease, and to your point about cancers, many cancers becoming chronic, you're able to live longer with them, but it also means you're living with fear, anxiety, waiting for that progression, every appointment, you know, every, every blood count, every yuck, yuck, bone marrow biopsy is a waiting game of, do I have another mutation? Am I, do I now have blasts in my blood? Am I showing signs of disease progression? Or am I at risk of, I've had a mini stroke, for example, could I have a, oh, a full-on stroke? Even, oh. even more things in common. Brooklyn uh, cancer <laughs> stroke? We're dating. So I remember in 2006 or seven, the head of the NCI back then was Dr. Andy von Eschenbach. Mm. And the mission for years at the NCI was to cure cancer. And they changed it in this age of survivorship, which was given birth to in 86 by the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. Livestrong adopted it as practice. They build on these standards of care. The NCI changed its mission to eliminate death and suffering from cancer. And everyone like lost their shit. You're not going to cure it anymore? But it was like this whole cultural zeitgeist. Let's start thinking about it as something you can live with if you can't cure it. How do you feel about that? Or you are that. I am that. That's a good point. And uh, I think I've developed a lot of skills to deal with that. And I don't honestly believe that cancer is one entity. So frankly, the idea that you can cure cancer it is a, a is a wonderful idea, and I certainly would love to see, and I'm excited about in my disease state, that there is, from the time that I was diagnosed, when there were no approved treatments, to now there's, there's a plethora of clinical trials, and now there are even different classes of drugs. So it's really exciting. But I, the idea of curing it, when there are so many different drivers of cancers and so many different types of cancers, I, I guess I've never been a believer that that was fully possible, at least in a blood cancer. No, but I yeah. think that's why they yeah. changed it, yeah. because it became like a, a flaccid platitude. What does curing it even mean? Yeah. Right? I'm, I think, what, what did Lance say? Cancer may leave your body, but it never leaves your life. It's a great, one of the few things he said that's that was really cool. That's a great point, yeah. And I'm 27 years out, but don't look under my hood. I clean up nice, but under the hood is a hot mess, right? Right, So. Right. Right, there, and it there's leaves a very a trail. similarity here. Yeah, it leaves a trail of, I'm sure you have side effects of treatment and side effects of the disease itself that stay with you. One of my dear friends is still living with metastatic stage four ovarian cancer after like 16 years. And her tagline is, I'm way past my expiration date, which is just tongue in cheek. 
But do you feel a way in a sense? I say I'm going to be a good-looking corpse. Oh, God. <laughs> That's actually my, uh, um, my sort so of... So this is radio. Uh, I will uh, consent uh, to that. Uh, uh, well, thank you. I, I think the reason why I say that, and, and maybe other people can relate to this, is with chronic cancers and maybe lots of other cancers, if you're not in, um, if you're not receiving chemo that makes you lose your hair or causes drastic visual changes, people can't see that you're sick. People can't see that, you know, you have an underlying illness that's affecting how you move, how you think, you know, what you can do in your day. And so I think that's very true of a lot of blood cancers and certainly MPNs. We're back. <laughs> All right. My anecdote for you is that I was a uh, script advisor to a TV show called uh, Chasing Life, which was a young adult cancer, kind of like Ally McBeal-ish thing in probably 2013, 14, 15. And irrelevant, one of the, one of the storylines was she had cancer, she got chemo, and her hair didn't fall out immediately. And everyone watching is like, her hair didn't fall out on day one, right? Like, you have to be bald immediately. And today, there are plenty of treatments that you pointed out where you don't lose your hair and you're living with this invisibility. Right? Exactly. And we're still, we're still informed by you know, TV and film um, in terms of what we think cancer looks like mm-hmm. or cancer feels like. And it's, I, I'm old enough to remember um, Tell movies me terms like of endearment. A, I was going to say Love Story. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, where the, the female character, it's a love story, uh, for those who don't know, and she dies of a leukemia. Um, Is that the one where they don't tell her what she has? I believe not. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's an early movie with Betty Davis, I think, called Dark Victory from the 30s. I may be confusing Betty Davis for someone else, where they didn't tell her. It was a, like they feigned a brain tumor. Oh, they didn't but even they use the word it. cancer in those days. Yeah. yeah. It was like they didn't use the word. They said, oh, she's ill. And they didn't tell her why. And she died. And then she didn't know why she died. Like we've come so far pop culture wise. But can you point to anything where it's been like relevant or can we change society with pop culture? I do think that folks sharing their cancer diagnosis, particularly actors as an example, and then you know that they got treated and were able to survive that cancer. Okay. When Michael Douglas was diagnosed with throat cancer, and I believe it was stage four, if I'm not mistaken, but in any case, I remember thinking, wow, they're just that like is us. Really seri- and it's really houses. serious. And uh, I don't know if he's going to be around. And here he is today, still going strong. And he's know? an HPV advocate because, I mean, yes. just an aside, most people yeah. don't realize that HPV isn't just for girls. Right. Right. You can get oral cancer, anal cancer, and he had it in his throat. All right. So another thought here is that uh, I've always been sort of an antagonist of the phrase be your own advocate because it ain't that easy. I talk about no one's born with congenital chutzpah unless you happen to be born with congenital chutzpah. Where did that live in your DNA? I might have been born with congenital chutzpah, but... Um, Jersey definitely exacerbated uh, uh, that. Well, I was Brooklyn, New York, um, et cetera. But I think it is still a learning process for me. Every experience, being an inpatient, every experience stepping into you know, a healthcare setting, every phone call to the office uh, builds on that experience of you know, how do I get better care? But I, I'm, you know, a health educator. I wholly believe in improving the patient experience. And I hate that having a disease like this, 
becomes a job and mm-hmm. it really shouldn't be a job. Well, also that's like the unspoken truth that beneath the veneer, but you look great is yes, it becomes a job. You have to almost like set up your own company, like the Save My Ass Incorporated, and manage all the people you're hiring that you never wanted to pay on your payroll to do that. I'm also not a huge fan of the idea of like, uh, you know, what would you tell someone else like you? Because no one expects to be told what to do, right? You're entering a store that no one wants to shop in. So again, (laughs) what would you tell somebody that enters the store? Well, I do have that experience. I'm a, a First Connection volunteer for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. A great group. Yeah, I love them. And I do really strangely enjoy connecting with other people and being able to share a little bit and help them. I've been doing it since 2018. And at this point, I think I've talked to, I don't know, 55 people or so. And so these are folks who are newly diagnosed with an MPN. And, you know, I I, I listen. They haven't talked to anybody who has this rare disease. They haven't seen anyone. And so I think I'm always trying to help them kind of catch their breath understand that it's possible. I'm an example, although we're all different, but I'm an example of someone who has lived many years now. So, you know, trying to give them some semi-realistic hope. And I believe this is their first connection program or first connect program. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I've been involved with that because when young adult cancer became a thing, they needed to talk to younger people. The jargon in our space now is social determinants of health, right? What causes this and what causes that? I love that that expression. I'm a health educator. Yeah. Yeah. So should Google be a social determinant of health because people only know to think about it a lot if they happen to find it. What, what about all the other people? What are they supposed to do when they happen to find something or they don't happen to find something? They're wandering alone in a sea of nothing. There's no peer support. Yeah. You're providing that. But can you comment on how you think this could possibly scale? Sure. So as a health educator, I deeply believe in the social determinants of health, which are about all of our, you know, the factors of our lives that influence our health care, from, you know, where you live to environmental toxins, et cetera. A part of that or a social determinant of health is health literacy. Which so, is what for the listener? So health literacy is about being able to access and understand information and support that helps you make health decisions that ultimately improve your health. That's a long-winded way of saying, you know, give me what I need to know so that I can take action to help myself. And who's the arbiter of giving that to you then? Where's the trust? Where's the access to that person that's giving you this, I need to know shit I didn't need to know? Well, you just mentioned Google. Um, (laughs) So it's it's, um, every health site, every pharmaceutical company that has a website that provides information about their treatment, about illness, certainly the federal government, et cetera, et cetera. We all need to communicate. Providers, we need to communicate in plain language. So I know used a lot of alphabet soup, but I think we need to to speak in a way that helps people understand what we mean. You don't need to, you shouldn't have to have a PhD in your in your illness to be able to take care of yourself. So can science, can academia, can medicine speak human? They can. They don't do it well. Um, They don't do it consistently. Uh, There's one conference that I go to each year or used to pre-pandemic that was focused on MPNs that was hosted by an academic medical center. And unfortunately, it's physicians, all experts. They're great to hear, but they're using their, their, their slides from medical conferences with physicians to educate patients. So you kind of walk out there, your head's breaking because you're trying to make sense of the alphabet soup and the mutations and the allele burden and all this other stuff and apply it to yourself, um, but they're not breaking it down for you. 
Well, They're not telling you this is what's important for you to know. This is this might help you take action. You know, this is what could happen to you. Right. In Star Trek, just outing myself as a Trekkie, they have something called the universal translator. It kind of lives in your ear. And in any language and any species of any planet, you just know what they're saying. Right? It can distill anything to anything. It doesn't exist in healthcare. Have you seen any examples where a person comes in that's maybe low literacy or socioeconomically, you know, disadvantaged, and they're being spoken to by a PhD person and they have no idea what to do? Uh, there are absolutely techniques for breaking that down from the you know the provider, or the clinician who's speaking to that patient. There are methods like the teach-back method, but of course it it's based on first communicating in a way that's clear. But the teach-back method, for example, you're asking that person that you're communicating with key questions to to make sure they understood. One of the essential things all providers can do is ask. Is there anything else I can tell you? Do you have any other questions for me? And then if someone does have more questions about the very same thing that you've already talked about, it's thinking about how to communicate it another way, drawing pictures. We have the tools now for great media, for great illustrations, for videos, for communicating in lots of different ways because also everyone learns differently. I mean, a lot of patients don't really care about the science, they just want to be cured. Exactly. So why do they need to know anything? They just want to trust a human being that could be their mechanic and maybe their empath. They don't. As a matter of fact, I think, you know, that's where you need to tailor your information a little bit and assess how much people want to want to know. I think there's a misnomer that if you have cancer, right, you want to understand the deep science. I'm a health educator. I don't really want to read about the deep science all the time. Right. I want to know what's this treatment going to do for me? How is it different than maybe what I had before? What side effects or, or changes do I need to look for? And what's, you know, what's the end benefit? And give it to me in a way that's about me, the person. So let's wrap with a conversation about uh, what I call survivor guilt and caregiving and the impact this had on you and your dogs and your, your, your whatever your I family. I do have dogs. Right. One dog and two cats. Because I was diagnosed and my parents were like 47. My brother was a freshman in college. And, and years later, I'm like, what the hell did I do to them? And then I had to reconcile that. I didn't do anything to them. It just kind of happened to me. What was your experience? I can see and that. How did your family manage? I think my guilt comes in um, to play when I think about my worst years when I was the sickest, when I had deep fatigue, when I had more hospitalizations, and I had a house of teenagers, I couldn't you know, be the one to drive them to all their social activities. But that's hard uh, enough when you're well. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Or like back to school night where you're, you're replicating your child's uh, schedule and you're every 20 minutes going up and down the steps of the building. And I'm like holding onto a staircase you know, breathing deeply, short of breath, like nearly in tears because this is so hard and all I'm doing is going from one classroom to another. So I think, I mean, as a, I'm a grandma, I have not been able to babysit for my grandchildren the way I would have liked. And that, that causes guilt. Right. But again, that goes back to the nuance of who you are as a person, not what's inside you. Right. Do you feel like anyone cared about that? I think my husband does. Well, I mean, outside of family. <laughs> yes. We talk about, like, did you see a therapist, a nurse? Oh, like, good from, question. From your okay. care team, in right, quotes. Right, right. Um, I have a fabulous, fabulous MPN specialist who has a fabulous team that includes a physician assistant and a nurse practitioner. And every single one of them listens to me at each visit talk about not only what I'm feeling, but what I'm feeling and how it affects what I'm doing, how I'm living. So I think that's... You know, that, that's essential. 
Well, I'll close by saying one of my dad's favorite quotes is, every day is a good day if you wake up above the grass, right? True, true. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you share your story with me and our listeners on the show. All right, Julia, well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. It's mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us. And we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.